welcome to the aggressive life. You know, we all have that friend who's just cool as hell, right? Cool job, cool style, cool attitude, cool freaking hair with his own Wikipedia page. We all got our friend that's like that, right? Well, I got this guy as a friend. I, I, I shared three days with him in very, very close proximity. We've, we've stayed in touch. And uh, that guy, that's Pete Mueller. He is an award-winning photographer. He works as, as a storytelling fellow for National Geographic. He's been all around the world. He's chronicled everything from the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone to the humanitarian crisis in Sudan, conflict zones in Africa and the Middle East. And he had a documentary on the early days of COVID in New York City called The First Wave, and it was shortlisted for an Academy Award. And... And he has been studying and documenting modern forms of masculinity. Fascinating guy. And, and he came to Man Camp, a thing that I run with some other dudes. It's had about 20,000 guys go through it. He came uh, to it last year, and it was awesome, just awesome spending time with him. I thought, man... So much of what makes a good podcast, just having a good conversation with somebody who just who you like, you love being around. And so, welcome to the aggressive life, Pete Mueller. Thanks a lot, Brian. It's <laughs> nice, to, nice to see you, as they say in these uh, in this age. Yeah, no kidding. Like I'm, I'm thinking to myself, man, this is this is how fast life has gone. We, you know, we 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 had a, an amazing three days or so together, chit chatted here and there over the last year, and I thought, man, that's pretty sad that. I've got to have a podcast just to talk to my old buddy now. How are things? <laughs> they're going. They're going well. They're going well. It's amazing to think that almost a year has passed since we were together in Ohio last year. Wild, right? It is crazy. I didn't know about the the documentary that was shortlisted for an Academy Award. Talk, talk about that. Uh, yeah, well, um, I was I was fortunate to be asked by this really really terrific director Matthew Heineman and uh, a team that he'd assembled to come on to come on and help him co-produce this film about the really the chaos that was unfolding in New York City in the early days of the pandemic from sort of the, the ostensible period of the film is from March to June of 2020. Um, and I came on to, to help him. As you know, I'd, I'd previously covered the Ebola uh, outbreak in, in West Africa in 2014 and 15. So I had some degree of experience of covering these types of things. And, and Matt asked me on to help him put this film together. And, uh, you know, we ended up working on it for, you know, all in the filming and and the post-production, all that stuff was about 18 months or so. Uh, we put it out last November and, um, you know, the response has been, has been really good, positive. I think it's a really important film. So where can I see it? Uh, so it's a national geographic film, so you can watch it, um, on Disney plus, uh, you can watch it on Hulu, um, those, those, those platforms. And it was just nominated for seven Emmy awards or this round. So we're, um, wow. you know, we'll be, we'll see what that, that turns up in terms of recognition. The first wave. All right. I know it's going to be on my, my thing. That's good. Now, you mentioned National Geographic. Are you on staff with National Geographic? Are you uh, on retainer? Or, you know, what, 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 what's that look like? 
No. So, so my National Geographic at this stage has very few staff photographers. I actually think there are only two photographers that are technically still on the staff there. Um, we're all freelancers of sort of varying forms of engagement or commitment with National Geographic. I've been, um, over the last couple of years, I've been really fortunate to, to, to be a, what's called a storytelling fellow. Um, so that's a more involved level of commitment with them. I'm working on longer projects. You know, I sort of do a little bit more direct involvement with them as a result, but I, you know, I do, I do all kinds of things with Natchio. It's one of the cool things about it as a photographer is it, it offers all kinds of different ways that you can be involved in terms of commercial projects, speaking engagements, um, you know, grant grant funding, magazine assignments and stuff like that. So it's a really, it's a, it's a wonderful place to have that level of connection. How did you get interested in photography and when did you discover this was going to be your life? I, I, I grew up around it. Um, my mother was a newspaper photographer. My father's father had been a commercial photographer. He was a Swedish immigrant. So photography was around me a lot. Um, and the visual arts were around me a tremendous amount. Uh, my father was a, uh, a paintings restorer. He was a conservator at the Princeton University Art Museum where he stewarded their collection, did all the technical restoration on the paintings and the sculptures and stuff for like 40 years. Um, and so the sort of the role of visual depictions of the world was was very present in my life growing up, but I didn't necessarily want to be part of it. My family was kind of, they had their problems. Every family's got their problems, but I sort of felt that I kind of wanted to reject what I understood as, in fact, problems that afflict all kinds of people. I just saw them in the manifestation of like artists and people who were, in, who were involved in the visual arts. And so... But so I, I had an aversion to it, frankly. Um, but ultimately, as I went on, I went to university. I was studying peace and conflict studies. I was really interested in, in sort of the contemporary historic origins of modern conflicts. Why were these conflicts unfolding in various places? I wanted to understand that much better. And photography and sort of journalism more broadly provided me an opportunity to be able to like really study those things in a way that felt good to me, which was to be up close. But you have... Um a very eclectic background, right? I mean, you're, you grew up in a kind of blue collar, old school Boston neighborhood, right? Well, actually, no, not necessarily. My, it's, it's interesting. My, so my mother, as I said, was a newspaper photographer, so she didn't make much money. And the type of work that my father did also is not a particularly lucrative type of work. Uh, but we moved, my mother moved us from the southern part of New Jersey uh, on this barrier island to a town called Ma uh, Marblehead, Massachusetts, which was next to the city where my father grew up, which is Lynn, Massachusetts. And that town is well-to-do. It's been gentrified uh, a lot over the last 45 or 50 years. It used to be a boat building, fishing town. And then it was sort of discovered by people in the, mostly in the finance community in Boston, wanted to live on, um, you know, on the ocean. And they started buying up a lot of property there. But when we moved there, the town was sort of bifurcated in a sense that there were people who had a lot of money and then there was a lot of, you know, other people who didn't. And it sort of seemed that we were somewhat relegated. And I can't entirely tell. It's something I've been thinking through. To what extent did I participate in that relegation? Or was that actually something that was really prominent on the landscape? Or did it loom larger in my mind than I thought it did? Yeah, you were telling me that um, the buddies you grew up with are not the kind of folks who would go out and purchase National Geographic. You've got a you've got a, actually a bifurcation in your masculine journey in terms of people you spent time with, right? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, when I was when I was coming up, I was my father wasn't around uh, when I was coming up. It wasn't that he wasn't involved in our lives uh, in, at all, but he was sort of sparingly present. So I did a lot of 
seeking of sort of masculine guidance, both from friends, but also from older guys. And certainly all of the older guys that I grad gravitated towards were serious blue collar guys, you know, and I, that's the kind of work that I did. Of course, in the summertime, I played football and sports and things. And then in the summertime, we did construction work and, and that type of stuff. And, and those guys ended up really being strong mentors for me in terms of my sense of, I don't know, how I was supposed to behave as a, as a man or what my outlooks or value systems ought to be. So Pete, for those our listeners, Pete contacted me, folks who work with me, about a year, year and a half ago, a, w- a while ago, saying he was doing doing a study with National Geographic on masculinity. He wanted to come to man camp. Could he come? Of course he can. He came, brought a whole bunch of camera gear, was just like, you know, clicking, clicking shots all over the place. It was really fascinating for me to see this man camp through his eyes. We got to camp together, hang around a campfire for three nights and stuff like that. It was really, really interesting uh, just getting to know him. I want to get in a moment about some of your impressions of man camp. But before we get into that, just tell me, where, where did the project go? What was what was the heart behind your Masculinity in America project? What have you, what did you learn or what have you learned? Just, just fill us in on the vision of that. Well, so I, I've been working, Brian, on issues related to sort of men and behavior and male experiences for, for a number of years, probably almost, I guess, about 10 years. And what I'd been doing in the past is I would do these types of case studies. So I did a lengthy, like, two-year study of men in the warscape of the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, because I was based in East and Central Africa for, for over a decade. And... Um, I was really interested. There was, you know, a tremendous amount of violence that was unfolding uh, almost universally at the hands of, of men, of soldiers and, and different armed male, part- male participants in the armed landscape in the war. Um, and I became really curious about what ultimately was happening with these guys that was yielding this level of really egregious violence. So, um, you know, I, there, there, I, I became really almost kind of obsessed with the ideas of trying to understand, particularly soldiers, because soldiers were the ones that were quit committing most of the abuses. So I spent, you know, really a good amount of time. I was afforded a grant from the, what's called the Open Society Foundation of Southern Africa um, to be able to do this work. I was spending a lot of time with really low-level infantry, sh- infantry soldiers in combat, out of combat, doing these lengthy interviews, trying to better understand the circumstances that were giving rise to, to this kind of violence. Um, it was an extraordinary experience. I mean, to look, my background is not really in photography. My background, as I said, is in sort of conflict studies and conflict analysis. So mm. what was fascinating to look at was the ways in which these soldiers who had mostly been incorporated into the army, you have a lot of different rebel groups in a place like Eastern Congo. And one of the strategies for trying to create stabilities, uh, so to speak, is in Eastern Congo is to integrate all of these different rebel groups, which ultimately means that, you know, you're sort of plying them with, with, with the government will say, okay, you can come in this, your commanding officer will have a high rank. You guys get new uniforms, you get a few perks, but ultimately those soldiers are often not professionalized. And then the structures within the army are really, really substandard. Payments, leave time, therapy, you know, trauma treatment, all that stuff is virtually non-existent. So you're essentially dealing with a male population that's been either conscripted into the army or brought into the army in various ways, 
extremely brutalized at a psychological level. You know, they've been inculcated with a really strong sense of sort of, um, I don't know, aggressive masculinity, which in the atmosphere of that level of deprivation and trauma has really, really devastating impacts in terms of the use of violence. Um, so I studied that for a number of years. And then I did a longer study uh, for National Geographic magazine about boyhood around the world. How are boys sort of being raised in various parts of the world? What were the sort of lessons that they were learning? What was common among them? What was different? Um, and that was a that was a large story that we published in early 2018, I think, um, National Geographic magazine. And and now I'm continuing on with that um, in the American landscape. Coming out to Man Camp was sort of the early parts of my seeking uh, various types of things that were happening in a concentrated way of men engaging with other men um, about conversations about where we're at, how we're feeling, what we're doing, what's working, what's not working. Um, and from that, I've sort of, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot since I was with you guys there, um, including really starting a film project, which is what I'm, what I'm really working on now. So what are you learning and concluding? Is there any, are there any conclusions that you're having right now as far as the state of masculinity and men in America or jury still out? Like, let's just give us some stuff here. What's going on? Cause things don't look very good from my, my perspective. Right. Right. Well, I, th I think, you know, something, a lot of this, Brian, for me is, is, is really personal. As I said, I was, I was hit with like a really heavy dose of this type of, um, uh, um, aggressive masculine posturing when I was, when I was coming up and all I really cared about was being tough, being strong, being big, being sort of dominant, I guess. But in ways that certainly when I think back on it, were really supposedly about the right things I thought, you know, which was standing up for, you know, I got into a, a lot of physical, you know, fights and stuff. And, and I'd like to think that most of that was motivated by an interest that I felt that I tied certainly to my sense of masculinity of being willing to step in and protect other people that I didn't feel were necessarily as capable or as willing to stand up for themselves. Um, but it certainly had a very, I, I was really brought into what I felt was a very aggressive space. And the truth of the matter was, is that I was struggling with a lot of stuff emotionally that I felt I had no language for. Um, you know, we learn a lot of things as boys and, and men, but, but not among those things, at least in my experience, was any clear, strong sense of like emotional expression or emotional literacy, being able to really talk openly and freely about how you were feeling. It all just sort of got pushed out, at least in my case. And I think it's the case for a fair number of people at a certain point, point in my life, it was all getting pushed out as anger. And it really, it, in truth, it wasn't wasn't anger. I suppose some of it was anger, but, but for the most part, it was a feeling of, well, I don't know, insecurity, dejection, feeling unsure, feeling to some degree, like kind of unwanted by my folks and stuff. You know, it was just a lot of, there was a lot of emotional stuff that was happening with me and I did not have, um, outlets or language for that stuff. So you, you, you were that way and now you are a different way or you were in the middle somewhere, uh, where, where, where do you see that now? Because I don't, I don't see any. Uh, the time I spent, I don't see any unhealthy forms of aggression within you. I don't see any, any, any of that. No, well, I'm, you know, I think this is really the product of a lot of work that I felt that I've that I've done um, really over probably the last like, oh, I'd say twenty years of my life, but most concertedly over the last like ten to fifteen years of really trying to think through 
you know, what, what feels good to me? How can I kind of be in a sort of better sense of, I don't know, of balance with myself and being able to communicate in ways that feel, I don't know, uh, accurately expressive of the way that I feel like I'm experiencing the world. So it's, it's you know, it's, I, I continue to do therapy these days. You know, I try to participate in as many constructive things. I read an awful lot. You know, I take a lot of therapeutic value of being like with you guys last year. You know, I try to be in as many atmospheres as I can and learn from the people that I communicate with. You know, these, these projects are, 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 I hope can be something that can help our understanding of things, but I, I'd be lying if I said that they aren't very personal to me in the sense that I derive a lot of satisfaction um, and a lot of, I don't know, something very helpful from being with, with other men and talking with other men about how they are navigating the world. I mean, it seems like you're drawing some heavy stuff. Uh, Ebola outbreak, that's pretty heavy. Humanitarian crises in Sudan, conflict zones in Africa, the Middle East. I mean, that's that's some pretty heavy stuff. Are you drawn to that stuff because it's what makes good photos? It's what people want to hear about? or Or just you personally, you're drawn to those conflict, difficult things? I think it's probably some of both. You know, I think I think I felt a lot of conflict in my upbringing, you know, in my family. And and I think that that really began to be the germinating like factor in my interest in conflicts outside of myself. So I think I do bring that at least in terms of the sort of energy that I have for it. But and, and I think to some degree, I've intellectualized some of that emotional experience um, and, and pursued it as these sort of like investigations as to how do how do people's senses of being wronged, of, of, of facing injustice, of of going through things that are really unacceptable as a as a group of people being dominated by by somebody that, um, you know, for, for reasons that don't feel fair. And how do those things ultimately motivate people to move into the realm of, of violence and, and armed conflict? So I, I think, you know, photographically, it's something that I, it's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm grateful to have moved away from some of that, because I think, you know, what's interesting to me about conflict photography, in a sense, is that people think it's really hard. Um, and of course, it is hard uh, it, because you could be killed. Any number of bad things could happen. Um, but ultimately, it's 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 a landscape. It's a situation that's really thriving in like super high drama, right? Everywhere you turn, there are extremely dramatic things that are happening. People are being killed. People are being displaced. People are in, you know, living in, in very desperate circumstances. And the photographic medium, the photojournalistic medium often really thrives under those kinds of circumstances. Um, but I think there's a huge amount of very, of much deeper um, reasoning for why those situations arise. And, and, and I'm grateful at this stage to be kind of moving into the quieter spaces. It's much, much more challenging, um, you know, to try to make compelling imagery um, in quieter, more familiar places. But, but I, think that, I think that what I'm grappling with are things that are sort of universal. And if, 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 if I can meet the challenge of, of using the sort of communication techniques that I have, audio, film, photography, um, I, think, I think we can create some really important stuff that helps us understand things better. So you show up at man camp. Mm -hmm. Not sure exactly what you were expecting initially, 
we had a good time with Pete. I remember this one. He came in and said, "Hey, look, I think I'm. We we know we don't we never let outside people come in. It's it's uh, what happens at man camp stays at man camp, is what we say. Um, we don't bring in outside video crews or anything like that. Um, we have some people who take video and photos internally for next year's promotion purposes, but just haven't done a lot of that at all. Pete comes in and he's he comes in a day early when all the lead team is there and kind of we're, we're staying up late, drinking the night before, sitting around a campfire and just kind of getting everything. He's getting the lay of land, all that stuff. And he said, he says, hey, um, okay, so I'm going to come up. I'm going to hear. I, I want to talk to some people, but we just need to tell people. Like people just need to look at me and tell me. Hey, uh, hey, f off, f off, Pete. We said, uh, uh, okay, okay, we'll tell them that. So the first session, big, huge tents, big, huge tent, five twelve jugs. Okay, we got a guy from here from National Geographic, Pete. He says if you don't want to talk to him, you can just tell him to f off. Uh, I'm, I'm saying the short one, Dirk, because I don't want to get edited out of a, what. What's what's the standards here about editing and how this podcast gets out? Yeah, you should probably just edit yourself. I'll just edit myself. Yeah. Okay, good, good, good. so yeah. He said this, so why don't we all just practice right now? Let's just tell Pete to F off. The whole whole group looks like, F off, Pete! <laughs> it, it broke the broke the uh it broke the ice and then of course it was our way. Actually, I I, I told you you were you were uncomfortable with that. I said, no, no, loosen these dudes up and then you'll be able to talk to anybody at any time. And so you basically had unfettered access. We're around talking with dudes. Just tell, tell us what did you learn about the average guy who chooses to attend a man camp event? And, and, and is the guy who attends a man camp event, in your knowledge with this um, project, is the average guy who comes to a man camp event the average guy in America, not the average guy uh, guy in America? I mean, it's part of the reason why I wanted to, to come to man camp. And, and what I think is part of what's so interesting about what you're doing, Brian, is that I think you're reaching a group of people that uh, is pretty often like excluded from this type of conversation. You know, I think we, we both know that there are, um, I don't know, a fair amount of conversations that are unfolding these days about about men and ideas of masculinity and all these ideas of toxicity and all this stuff. And um, and I, I think certainly in kind of a, a like an urban sort of different political type of group, I think there's more discussion about this. But, you know, certainly with a lot of the guys that, that I grew up with, this, you know, who are more vocational and blue collar guys, this just still is not something that's particularly like dominant in discussion. And I think you have done such an interesting job of, you know, through your role at Crossroads and the audience that you have of that, bringing men together for, you know, for the ostensible purpose of, okay, this is going to be a worship event. But when you, in the context of that, which draws so many guys, and as you've said, and as you've by design created Man Camp, as this opportunity for guys to come and have a religious experience outside the confines of the walls of the church, which, you know, you explained to me, is, is commonly not a space where men in particular feel, you know, particularly comfortable, or not all men, certainly men that prefer to be outside, men that like to work with their hands. It's not always for them a suitable type of environment. So you've created this incredible kind of atmosphere where you're you're inviting in uh, a group of men that I think is extremely important. And, and, and I think it's a, it's a group that is to some degree, in my opinion, is somewhat excluded from some of these conversations that you are doing, you know, such a great job of facilitating. Let's not just talk about, um, you know, the ostensible reasons why we're here, all the stuff that draws people, you know, like we'll get out, we're going to chop wood, we're going to clear land, we're going to camp, we're going to play games. But in the mix of all of that is this really important conversation that you're attempting to have about how men are doing. 
and how we can sort of be there for one another and better understand one another and create more constructive, um, you know, pathways through some of the challenges that, that men face. And, and as you looked at that, um, you, you're, you're, you're kind of, um, your observations uh, actually were actually a bit helpful when you came. You, you did it again. You called it a worship event. I would never call Man Camp a worship event. There's certainly a good bit of worship there. But I think what you're saying, uh, for, for me, that's just a, a small place of it. But for you, and this is, this is the vernacular you used that I, I shunned initially, but then I, the more I've thought about it, I was like, eh. You, you said it was a revival. You said you basically have a revival going on here. And, and I was like, a revival? Like, hmm, that's, I don't know, that's probably more accurate than I would have thought that it was before. Why, why do you, uh, worship is just such a very small portion of the time period, given all the other stuff's there, but you, you tend to draw towards those parts of the experiences. Those things seem to be the things that capture your imagination or seem to be the strongest for you or what? What, what, what is it about you? Because you're not a... Um, unless you, something's happened in the last year, you're not a, would you call yourself a follower of Christ? No, I wouldn't. Yeah. I was, I was re- raised with a sort of, um, I guess almost what I'd describe as a kind of schizophrenic relationship with religion in the sense that my mother would go through these like fits of saying, you know, we've got to get you guys to church. And then we'd go for a couple of years. And there was a while where I was fairly sort of into it as a, as a teenager, but, but I, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe myself that way. And in fact, you know, about the terminology, I had asked a number of the guys on your, on your team, like the organizers, I said, what do you, what would you call this? Because as someone that doesn't come from, from that culture, culture, you know, to me, I hear the word revival and it sort of seems like what I imagine a revival might be. And I guess, you know, some of them said, well, you could sort of technically perhaps call it, I'll call it that, you know, I chose worship event because I, I still don't quite know how to describe it because it's really multifaceted. I mean, it's something really, I think it's a really unique ecosystem that you've built there. And, and like you said, you know, the worship is, you know, it's part of every day, but it's not necessarily the dominant way in which people are spending their time. Although I was, you know, I was just incredibly moved by, by what I saw in the prayer tent. Um, you know, the, the, the big tent events where, where you're on stage and the band is playing and all that stuff. That's powerful in its own way, but there was something incredibly moving about the intimacy of the connections and the way that people were engaging with each other inside of the prayer tent. I mean, I've almost never seen anything quite like it. Well, why don't you ex- describe what that is to people who are listening? I'm curious how you would describe it. It's not yeah. like, hey, if you want to come in here and just hold somebody else's hand and pray, go ahead and do that. There's a structure to it. So talk about that. Well, you you correct me where I'm where I'm wrong. I mean, I only have what I recall from my observations, but you have you have a, a team inside that's sort of there as the designated people who are there to pray with men and hear men out and and, and sit and engage with them. And and I guess it seems to vary. Is it is it typically two men that receive somebody? Or is yeah, it- it's generally two, two at a time. Right, right. And I, and I saw some instances where there were more than that. Um, you know, some really intense instances where, where other men were coming over and supporting this process. And, and what it seemed to, to, to be to me, and I was really trying to be mindful also of people's privacy and things as these conversations were underway. Um, you know, I only took photographs in there. I didn't do any audio recording. Um, but, you know, men in the throes of some of the most, um, moving visual emotional breakdowns that I'd seen men undergoing, particularly in a collective circumstance like that, where you've got lots of guys together and men are, you know, collapsing and, and crying and holding one another, um, in, in these really, really sort of powerful, 
exchanges. Um, and, I, and I was able to speak to some uh, as they were leaving. I may have taken a couple of photographs and then approached those people afterwards and talked to some, t- talked to some of them afterwards. And, and I, I was able to do that on a number of occasions. And it was amazing to hear, you know, what, what people were describing as to what went on inside and, and how they reached that point of that emotional break. Because I, I think it's something that just still, you know, despite some of the efforts that we've made to try to encourage men to be more open, I still think there are so few places where men are really able to be that kind of vulnerable with one another and, and know that it's not going to, you know, there's not going to be rebuke and no one's going to, you know, put anybody down. It's just firmly uh, a, a sort of structure of, of emotional support. Yeah, well, there certainly is that. I, I don't I don't think that there's really much emotional support for anybody in America, let alone men. I mean, um, women, I think, can emotionally support one another without getting a level of criticism. But as soon as men start, you know, uh, supporting one another, we just, had, we just had, a, had a guest on. He was talking about this, about how even our vernacular, vernacular with men, you know, if two guys are going to go out and hang out as friends, they're, ha- they're on a mandate, no, they're hanging out as friends. If, if 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 another guy seems infatuated with another guy, really intrigued by him, and and likewise, then it's a bromance. You know, we have these these uh, you know these terms, almost like we're trying to dis- diffuse the awkward nature of guys being friends, and so therefore, guys aren't being friends uh, because it's it's just seen as weird and. Dudes are hurting, and when they come to a place where uh, it's okay to be not okay, there's some powerful things that can happen. I think that's part of what happens that, in that prayer tent. I, I, I agree. I agree. And, and, and it seems to be so statistically substantiated these days that men are really struggling. We see that in suicide rates. We see that in alcohol abuse. We see that in opioid deaths. You know, we see that in, in the, the people that participate in surveys that talk about the level of friendships that they have. I mean, there's a staggering number of men, I think over the age of 40, that report act- actually having no friends, nobody to turn to when they've got problems. And, you know, I think that all of these things are interrelated. As you said, you know, it's, there's a lot of loneliness and isolation in America right now across the sex line. Um, but, you know, I, I think to some degree, um, being able to form, um, you know, I think men are some of what I hear women lament uh, at times is this sort of burden of, of all this emotional labor that they're often kind of is foisted upon them by the men that they're with um, and having to sort of listen through all, you know, all of what this guy is going through because there's not really room to share any of that. Where, where is he allocating? Is there some portion of this that he could potentially allocate to an, a different part of his support network, other friends, people, you know, other men that could share some of that? Oh, you're rather- saying when a guy's dating a woman, she's his lifeline or or wife, life, everything line? Because I, I got nobody else to support me emotionally. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that seems commonly taught, you know, that, that's commonly discussed that we sort of, you know, as men, as heterosexual men are relying on, on our female partners to sort of carry us through all of the tribulations and, you know, emotional tumult and stuff that we go through. Because my contention is that we just don't have sufficient enough relationships with other men to be able to vent at least part of that, of that, uh, of that burden. Yeah, boy, uh, that's a, that's interesting. I did not know that women were noticing that and articulating that. that. That makes a lot of sense. Which, shout out to the women folk who are with us right now. If you've got a guy and he's spending a lot of time and a lot of money on experiences with friends, 
it can be tough, I know, but before you criticize it or try to lessen it, just recognize if a guy has another guy that he's spending time, or guys he's spending time and money with, that is a safety net for you. And I, I, I speak with women all the time who feel threatened and vulnerable because their man doesn't have anybody. They just feel exposed. And I don't think that they would say this. I don't, they never put two and two together and say, I am more threatened and I am fragile and I am at risk because my husband doesn't have her. They, they, they never like say that. They never say that clearly, diagnose it that clearly. Hmm. But that's basically what they're saying. That's what they're feeling because that's, that's the way it is. It's tough. Well, I think, I mean, you're so well positioned. It's why I'm interested in your perspectives, Brian, for a number of reasons. But one of which is that you are essentially, I mean, in your role, you're a confidant for people. You know, a lot of people, some people turn to therapists, some people have friendship networks and stuff. But I think you, in your role, you hear an awful lot of what's happening in the inner lives of, of people. So you're, I think you're well positioned to sort of make determinations about what's happening and, and to hear that somewhat reinforced, perhaps not in the same language. And I don't mean to impose anything on anybody. These are just things that I've observed in my, in my own discussions with people, that women at times really do feel that they're carrying a tremendous amount of, of, of burden in the emotional sphere by having to field just about everything that the men that they're involved with are going through uh, if, they, if he doesn't have another support system. So is what you saw at Man Camp a microcosm of the macro project that you are working on or was what took place at Man Camp? I'm not talking about the events and uh, all that stuff. We could talk about that if we want. But just like the the general, um, the general state of the guy there or what took place there, is that representative of the larger body of your work or is it an outlier? I, I don't know. I don't think it's an outlier necessarily, but I, I you know, I, I, I don't know. I guess it's in part because my, my work is like kind of informed, arguably maybe too much so by like you know, I really liked university, I, you know, and I, there was always, there's always been part of me that thinks, well, I should really, okay, I'm a photographer or, or a filmmaker or whatever, but really the way that I pursue things is almost in an academic way. Um, and so to me, yeah, over time, when you hang around in lots of places and you talk to lots of people about the same things, you begin to notice commonalities. And I do think that there are baseline issues that really unify experiences across worlds and communities and, and, and language communities and all that stuff. But I, I try to treat most things as a sort of independent ecosystem. And I think Man Camp was that way. I mean, I think it's representative of a lot of different dynamics. But I try not to extrapolate too, too much, certainly until I feel like I've really got my bearings. And to me, you know, working back in the United States, I'm obviously from here, but I was away for a very long time. I mean, the majority of my adult life uh, up until about two and a half years ago was spent overseas. And so I'm still really cautious of any conclusions that I'm, that I'm drawing about the things that I'm seeing. Well, what about surprises when you were at man camp? Things that you're like, hmm, didn't expect that, huh? Uh, that's interesting. I did not expect that prayer tent and I did not <laughs> expect the energy in that tent. I mean, it was just, as I said, you know, I, I have a, I have sort of a back and forth relationship with, with, with religion and it was, it was inconsistently involved enough in my life that it's there in some ways and absent in others. 
But I've always found there to be something almost gravitational about religious experiences that people are having. I mean, almost every time when I was assigned to take photographs in any place, particularly in Africa, but almost anywhere, I mean, one of the first stops I would make is whatever was at whatever sort of religious institution was there. Um, churches, mosques, you know, any place where people were coming together to, to pray. Because, that, you know, ultimately we are fundamentally social creatures. We have a deep, deep abiding need to be with one another and to communicate with one another. I mean, I think it's how we experience, not just culturally and emotionally, but neurobiologically, we need one another to sort of alleviate uh, the sort of stresses and, and the things that we contend with. There's something so important. And what, what was occurring in that prayer tent I thought was one of the most sort of exceptional and intense versions of that type of communion that I that I'd seen almost anywhere. I mean, I was incredibly moved by it, and I and I think that the photographs really show that. There was one image that I made there um, of a young guy who I was able to speak with afterwards, and you know, he was in the midst of a of a pretty emotional moment, and he was surrounded by other men, and they were touching him, they had their hands on him, and and he was you know really breaking, and it was it was incredible. I mean, it was just an incredible scene, and I think the photographs reflect some of that energy. So when you see that kind of um, movement of the spirit in that tent, you feel that kind of movement of the spirit in the tent. What keeps you from stepping over the line to saying, I want more of that in my own personal life forever? Is, you know? Yeah. I mean, I I think it, it does, you know, to me, I guess I have a kind of agnostic view in some ways of anything that makes, that, that helps people, you know? And, and I think to some degree, I sort of pick and choose the things that I'm learning help me. So, you know, there are elements of, of something that I could experience at man camp that are alluring, that felt really good and restorative, but I, I, I don't necessarily feel like committed in my life in any particular way to a certain type of like school of thought or ideology or practice. I kind of just draw from whatever, whatever seems to be working for me. So I, I pick and choose elements of things. And, and I have nothing but um, respect and affirmation for people who find solace and comfort and guidance in whatever they, you know, wh- wherever they derive it from, so long as it's not destructive to, to other people. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you seemed uh, visibly touched by that when we, were, when we were together. I almost felt like you, you, you couldn't step over the line of faith because you had your journalistic integrity to hold to and you you can't which I, I totally 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 respect it's like oh hey man I, I didn't come here to have a I don't know transformation moment or whatever moment came here to do my job which is great I, I felt like there was that um, you know a pr- maybe appropriate barrier up because that's that's what brought you there was the job and I just wasn't sure like in the years since then um, as you've uh, gone on your journey if there's been anything more that's been I don't know insightful or helpful for you well, it's, it, I mean, it, it was, I, I suppose it's, it's interesting to how we might think about like something being transformative because it was a transformative experience for me. I mean, I'll never forget that experience. Um, b- but I, I have to say that, you know, to varying degrees, but I feel relatively transformed, I think because of the degree to which I care about this. I mean, I really, really care about this. And that, and my care is, is centers in me because, I, you know, I really want to try to be, the sort of best and healthiest and most productive and and uh, and considerate version of the man that I am, but I also think that there's incredible significance at a social level for us better understanding these issues. And so, when I come at these 
stories or whatever you want to call them experiences, I suppose is better or feels more accurate to me. I am, I'm pretty immensely transformed by, by most of what I'm able to do in part because people are, you know, I, I'm, I think it's, they can, I think to some degree people can sense in me that how much I'm concerned with it and how much I'm seeking. I'm really seeking a lot. And, and I think that people have in response to that energy been incredibly generous with themselves um, and allowed me insights and opportunities to be with them and better understand things about them. And as I understand other people better, I think I begin to understand aspects of my myself better. Well, you definitely have a great knack of being personable, likable, empathetic. I mean, you're, um, yeah, you're a pretty, pretty, pretty impressive dude. You just, uh, you're very emotionally and relationally, relationally intelligent. Um, so Thanks, it's, it's easy for people to want to do that for you. Cause you just, man, you've got the, uh, you got the interaction gene. You're, you're, you got amazingly high EQ, IQ, RQ, the whole thing. It's really oh, good. Thanks. Thanks. I feel really, you know, it's been one of the, I think one of the things that's enriched my life the most really, um, has been that, you know, that, that I've been able to meet, I'm inclined to meet, and I've been able to meet so many interesting people who've been so generous with me, really. Man camp, hey, I tell you what, I would be really, really remiss if I didn't just take some time out right now to say to all of the masculine types here in this podcast, if you've been to man camp, you need to freaking go. I'm telling you right now, just go. Stop thinking about it. Stop researching about it. 40 different, 40 different states have signed up so far for the man camp that's October 21st to 23rd. Have fun. Smile. Laugh. Push yourself. Meet some new dudes. Have perhaps some transcendent spiritual experiences that might happen for you. Friends, I got, I got to tell you, man, I want to see you there. It's one of the most important weekends of your life. It may be the most defining and important weekend of your life. Push yourself. Get out there. Go to mancamp.us. Registrations close 9.15 midnight on September 15th. Can't wait to see you there. You will thank me. Get there. Stop procrastinating. Chop, chop. So are there are there other um, commonalities that you're finding as, you're, as the project has gone forward? Can you like give us any things of, hey, men are like this in the world, or is it not true that men in America are doing the same things that men in wherever are? Or is America a microcosm of what's happening all over the globe or, or what? Is this, this masculine crisis, whatever it is, is it everywhere or is it just in America? Well, here's something that I'll say with some reservation, but I think it's something that I do believe. I think that, um, the way that we, the way that we define and reinforce notions of, of masculinity seem to really correspond with, um, hardship in a lot of cases and and beyond hardship i'd say scarcity where you find uh significant amounts of scarcity be it resource-based or economic or both usually those things are like conjoined where things are really scarce where people have a either a real or imagined sense that there's not enough to go around you see a, a pretty widespread reinforcement of very aggressive notions of, of masculinity because it's just 
the fundamental feeling that um, there's not enough. Uh, someone is going to, it's going to be best for whatever in group, you know, whichever group of people says, okay, if our, generally speaking, if our men are bigger, stronger, tougher than the men over there, because it just tends to be how fights go down is that men fight other men then we will be the beneficiaries of those limited resources. Um, and so when things are really scarce, you start to see much, much more rigid, tougher notions of, of masculinity. Hmm. And, and I think that where, you know, if you kind of look around at places where we see much more, you know, so-called like progressive notions of masculinity, where we're seeing a kind of, I, I don't know, the words for this stuff still kind of elude me like a, 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 a more sort of softening, emotionally aware uh, type of masculinity generally speaking, those things tend to transpire in places where people are pretty comfortable um, and they don't necessarily have to fight day to day to get what they need. I.e. America. Well, no, I mean, I think America is incredibly, I mean, I think the level of wealth disparity and the experiences that people are having in the United States are so staggering where, you know, where some people have more than, you know, any group of people have ever had in human civilization and other people are living in profound destitution. Yes. But, you know, when I hear people talk about the, uh, you know, are, are men even needed anymore? The idea of toxic masculinity, those always tend to be higher brow folks and higher income brackets. They're not, they're, people aren't saying that and asking those questions in blue collar communities. It's, you talk about the university, it's, it's, it's the university crowd that believes we can just evolve to higher levels of consciousness and we don't, we don't need all those extra muscles. Right. 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 Well, and, and I would say that I think that that's in line with part of what I'm describing is that the more insulated people are, yes. you know, the more comfortable they are, the more that they have and the less that they have to like, you know, really contend with at a very basic level in terms of getting what they need, you're, you're much freer in that respect. Um, you know, you don't have to go out and fight. You don't have to be, you know, fearful and or prepared to, to confront somebody who might really cause you harm or intend to cause you harm, um, you know, over something that there simply isn't enough of. So, so, you know, yeah. I think, I think what you're saying and what I'm saying is, is similar in some ways. Well, the truth of the matter is us as men, uh, you know, we generally, I mean, when I say generally, I'm talking about 95% of the time, our, our, our skeletal structure is larger. We have more muscle mass. We have more body mass. We can move things greater, bigger, all that stuff more consistently. That works really, really well in times of war, which is what you're talking about. It also works really, really well in times of transmission factories, in times of building homes, in times mm -hmm. of plowing fields, in times of just using your body. And the average guy today doesn't use his body at all. He's, he uses his body at the gym to try to make himself look half decent, you know, in clothes. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that's probably part of our problem is we're wired to be more physical than we are right now. And we're out of sync with our physical nature. Um, I think it's a bummer. I think it's a bad thing when every home project, we don't know how to do it. And we're not sure we have the stamina to do it, so we have to pay somebody to do it. Nothing, nothing there's anything wrong with paying somebody. I just think it's another thing in the male psyche that makes us feel like we're fish out of water. And maybe generations from now, we'll evolve to where it won't be big of a deal. But I think, Pete, right now, this generation, the lack of physicality that the average guy has is a problem. And that's part of what's being born in the statistics. What do you think? 
Well, I think I think that I think that you're right in a lot of ways. I mean, this is this is stuff that's not really my expertise in terms of you know. I think, like you said, yeah, it's I mean, a podcast. I'm, Who cares if your expertise or not? Come on, it's a podcast. Come on, be you're being too measured. Your 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 Harvard faculty friends aren't going to listen to this and, and fact check you. Just come on, dude. We're a couple brothers with a, having a podcast. Right. I, mean, I guess I guess no, you're right. I mean, I, I take it. You know, I'm very cautious in in the kinds of things that I want to say because what I what I think, and it's not you know, I don't mean to not answer your question, but I think part of the, the deeper part of what you're saying, you know, pointing out these physical differences and in our inclinations in terms of physical activity and how that's advantageous or whatever is that I think we're at a really, really fascinating time in social history. There's been so much transformation of things that are happening now, you know, so much, so far, far fewer things, you know, there will always be a need to build houses. You know, there's no, I don't think so far as I can tell, unless we're going to 3D print houses, there'll always be a need for physicality and vocational work to some degree. But we're seeing such a massive social economic transformation that so much of the things that we relied on, both as releases or means of subsistence or whatever, these things are all changing. And there was so much so, so, social, like, ideology, meaning how men considered themselves, how they measured their value. And there were corresponding factors of this with women. You know, we've had all of these amazing kind of gendered identities that were predicated on the circumstances of old. And now those things are changing in remarkable ways. And I think we're sitting at like a a really fascinating, exciting, interesting time where we are alive and contributing to what the new definitions of these things are going to mean. And so I, you know, when I'm doing this stuff, because I kind of am taking it as seriously as I am, I just always want to try to make sure that I'm really thinking through what I'm observing and how I'm communicating about it. Because I also feel like there's something, you know, we all need each other. We need each other, yeah. all of us, all these different facets of our societies, men and women and blue collar people and white collar. We all need each other. And so we've got to understand one another in constructive ways. And so my caution in what I say is not necessarily because I have concerns about, you know, who, who's watching or thinking, but because I want to try to relay what I'm observing in ways that feel constructive, because this is a really, really exciting and important time. And, and I, want to, I want to try to relay whatever I'm thinking in, in ways that feel um, thought-provoking and engaging and not... Um, you know, alienating or something, you yeah. know? Well, I'm, I'm not trying to get anybody alienated. I'm just trying to get from you and pull from you what you're actually seeing without having mm -hmm. it being peer-reviewed by Harvard yet. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's got, come on, man. what are you seeing out there? I'm telling you, I'm seeing, I'm seeing that I think a guy's lack of physic physicality is affecting us. I, I, there's pockets of masculinity and pockets of culture that I think are outside of the, the nuclear winter that's sweeping that's sweeping society. And those ones are great. We need to learn from them. I'm just thinking just down the pipe, average guy who, you know, isn't doing social media, is never going to get a book deal, doesn't have a PhD because the average guys don't have PhDs, isn't, isn't concerned about what the mass everything says about this or that, doesn't measure his words. He's just trying to get through the day, the week, the month, the year, his life. And uh, man, those dudes, those dudes are not well. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right. And like we said before, you know, there's a lot of really scary statistic about those about those guys. And I think you're really, you know, you're really front and center, Brian, I think in 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 that discussion. And you know, it's why it's why I really wanted to you know, we had some engagement not so long ago where I, I would really like to see your voice involved in more of these types of discussions because I think you've got a lot to offer in that way. 
Pete, are you ready for the lightning round? This is this this round ends our ends our time together. It's when I give you I give you a sentence and you answer it real quick, like in a lightning fashion, like like quickly, bam. Can you do okay. it? Are you up for the lightning round? Sure. All sure. right, here we go. Here we go. The most aggressive move Pete Mueller's making right now. Um, I think I, this is going to sound kind of tongue in cheek, but I feel like I'm being extremely aggressive um, in terms of trying to better understand myself. Good. Yeah, this is going to be a lightning round. You don't have to expand upon it unless I ask you. So there we go. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, here we go. Biggest aggressive mistake you can remember making and what you learned from it? Um, I think that I, it's sort of almost related to the first question. I think that a considerable part of the mistake that I made in my life was having an outlook um, that sort of refused to engage with the things that were really and truly troubling me. Uh, and that created, I think, an awful lot of wasted time I, I, I thought I thought being a certain way was gonna uh, was just would just sort of allow me to get to a place where I wouldn't be concerned with those deep seated issues any longer, and I think that that was a real that was a real mistake that I continue to have to try to unravel. Most common thing that we're doing wrong when we take photos on our iPhone: uh, being inattentive. You know, people are just so cavalier. You know, we all are with pictures now. It's just snap, snap, snap. Um, you know, if, if people just took a, just a moment and kind of thought through a little bit of what you're, why are you actually raising the camera right now? And how can you utilize this as like a, a tool to best preserve uh, what is motivating you to, to take the picture in the first place? Interesting. Okay, I think you got some, some gold to mine there. So dig into that more. Like, intentional thought for saying, I raised the camera. What am I doing? I'm, I'm asking, why am I taking this picture? What's the interesting thing in this picture? What, 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 what do you mean? Just talk more about that. Like, so, so for example, I don't know, I'll just make like an example. You see something happening with like uh, one of your, one of your children, for instance, something great is happening with him or her. And, 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 and you, you, you're, you're motivated to raise the camera because you see that thing happening, but you people don't think through the fact that like you're seeing from your vantage point, you're able to look through the shoulders of the people who are standing in front of you and you're able to like, you know, see her expression or whatever it is. But as a photograph, you're going to want to move yourself into like a slightly better position so that the camera can actually record what it was that motivated you to take it out of your pocket in the first place. Cause people just kind of, you know, people say, Oh, look at this wonderful picture of my daughter doing this or that. And really it's a picture of the person standing in front of you's back. You know, you know, just momentary little pauses. I mean, we would do right. to pause on a lot of things that we're doing these days and just think for a moment before we act. But I think photography is one of them. All right. Last one. Last part of the lightning round. Area of the area of the world or topic that you would like to explore through photography. Uh, I don't know. These days I'm just feeling really committed to America. You know, I'm so glad to be back. America. Yeah, I think it's, I think we're at a really, really, you know, I think we're at a really important time. I think there's a lot of critical stuff that's going on right now. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful also to be expanding beyond photography. I mean, photography was the mainstay of what I did, you know, since I was about 25, I guess I'm, I turned 40 this year and it's really exciting to me to, 
to be working now more in film and and broadening what I'm able to do because I think you know photography I, I love photography and I always will and I think there's a really special power about photography I think it's a really it, it, it affords something really considered you know because it's frozen you have to imagine so much else what did it sound like what happened before what happened afterwards there's something really powerful about that but I'm really, really grateful to be working my way out into these other media that can more comprehensively tell stories. And I'm here, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working a lot up in the upper Northeast and um, in Maine in particular, and, and, and really pouring an awful lot of myself into trying to understand what's happening here. All right, Pete, if someone wants to follow up with you or see your films or your, see your photography, just give, it, give us an advertisement for yourself. Uh, I, I use Instagram a fair amount. I have an Instagram handle. It's Pete underscore K underscore Muller, M-U-L-L-E-R. And there you can find my website and links to stuff. But that's that's the, primarily the social media that I that I use. I have a website and stuff. But if you Google my name and photography or whatever, it'll it'll come up. Shoot, dude. I think I just realized if I've been saying your last name wrong, I think I've been saying Mueller and you're saying it's Muller. I'm sorry. That's okay. That's okay. I mean, people, are, it's, it, it happens all uh, the time. Mueller. So, Remember that? No, yeah, <laughs> Ferris Bueller, Mueller, Bueller. That's right. That's right. No, it's all good. I'll take a mispronunciation and I'll just turn it into a nickname for you. That's how I roll. That's how I roll. So perfect. All right, man. Hey, thanks for coming on. I love, I love what you're doing. You got some really great measured insights for us. Thank you. I, I just enjoy being with you, and um, and uh, I hope we hang together around the campfire soon. So. Yeah, that's it. Hey, if you heard Pete say anything that resonates with you, do something. This isn't a podcast about thinking about something, only as far as you start doing something. Here's the thing you could do. Here's the thing you do. If a guy from New England who works for National Geographic can come to a thing called Man Camp and have a really, really good time and uh, have a great memory, you can too. You can too. Freaking sign up. Get yourself out. Do something physical. Camp somewhere. Chomp, chop something. Laugh. Belly laugh. All that stuff you can have at Man Camp and more. Uh, we'll put the info here on the podcast. Thank you there, Pete Mueller, also known as Pete Muller. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.